reading from the English Standard Version. Revelation chapter 11, beginning at verse 15, hear the word of the Lord. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Father, we pray this morning that you would use your word in print to connect us to your word in person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his holy name. Amen. As we come to the end of chapter 11, we encounter the seventh trumpet, which represents the end of time and the final judgment. And this closes out the third of seven unveilings that are presented throughout the book of Revelation. And just another indicator here that I think we're reading this right and reading it as seven cycles of seven unveilings or seven cycles of, of different camera angles. You have, a, again, this parallel literary structure. If you remember before the seven trumpets, we had the seven seals. And in chapters four through seven, those first six seals showed us God's providential temporal judgments throughout history throughout this interadvental period that will culminate in a final judgment. And just like that, as you look at the seven trumpets, you have the first six trumpets showing us God's providential temporal judgments throughout this interadvental period. And once again, just like with the seals and this parallel literary structure, they culminate in the final judgment and this scene of worship in heaven. That's how the seals culminated. At the beginning of chapter 8 was another scene of the worship in heaven that's going on in conjunction during this interadvental period and the final judgment with the last trumpet. Both of these unveilings, we have argued, are showing us the same events from different camera angles, from different perspectives, Dolls within nesting dolls. We've used several metaphors, borrowed several metaphors. And I was reminded this week as we look at the, the ultimate outcome of the conflict between God and Satan, and that's what this is about. Salvation is much more than just an individual experience where my personal sins are forgiven and I receive the eternal the gift of eternal life through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's a central part, no doubt, to this ultimate conflict between good and evil. And, and one's individual salvation is very, very important in being right with God through Christ. 
is of the utmost importance. But salvation also includes this idea of becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God. That is the running theme of the seventh trumpet, the kingdom of God. And by Christ's gift of the Holy Spirit to those who believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you if you are a follower of Christ. The Holy Spirit has made you a citizen of the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit has brought you under the rule of God and the rule of God's word. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, the human race fell into sin and fell under the sway of the false God of this world. And it's the coming of Christ and it's the work of Christ and his redemption on the cross in which human lives are being brought back into this kingdom. Things that have gone wrong because of the fall are in the process of being made right. And when that seventh trumpet blows, all of that will come to a culmination. And all of those who are living in Christ will be brought back to the place where God has our true allegiance for all eternity, our true, untainted, unadulterated, perfectly obedient allegiance for all of eternity. And it's in this sense of salvation, this bigger sense that God is bringing his kingdom into creation, that you have these worshiping voices in verse 15 exclaim, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, there were loud voices in heaven, that's the creatures, that's the angels, that's the cherubim, that's the elders, that's all those who have gone on before us, including many Syrian believers who died in an earthquake these past, this past week. They're there now too, joining in this song, saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And this is speculation. I can't give you the book and chapter, but I'm almost certain it is to the tune of the Hallelujah Chorus. What gets any better than that? That is the, the pinnacle of worship in my humble Opinion, And you'll notice in verse 15, the kingdom is singular. The kingdom of this world. That's, that's what we're living in right now. The kingdom of this world. The kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of the prince of the powers of the air. It's Satan's kingdom at this point in time. And it's a worldwide kingdom. But look at the verb that he uses in verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become. That's past tense. That's very intentional. That's very important. Because you think about from John's perspective as he writes this, and you think about these persecuted first century Christians as he writes this, and you think about those Syrian Christians and Christians in Turkey enduring untold persecution in the midst of untold natural disaster. The kingdom isn't here yet. And yet, based on this vision that John has, the consummation may still be in the future, but heaven can speak of it as, as if it's already happened. It is as good as done. Christ is reigning now 
And the reminder to the church in every age in the book of Revelation is that Christ will have eternal dominion and his kingdom is coming. It will come and it's as good as has already come. It is a sure and certain thing. And the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That doesn't mean there's two kings. There's one king. This is a Trinitarian formula. You have two persons plus the Holy Spirit, three persons, one being. That's why it says at the end of verse, it's the kingdom of the world has come to the king, has become the kingdom of our Lord. So the kingdom is coming. It's going to take over the kingdom of Satan. He's bringing everybody who's with him to be a part of it. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, two persons, one being, three persons, one being, when you include the Holy Spirit. But then at the end of 15, he, one being, he, that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God, shall reign forever and ever. When the end comes, when the seventh trumpet blows, Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father that God may be all in all, and the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He shall reign forever and ever, and it has become. It's as good as done. That's what these elders and creatures and cherubim and, and believers and angels are singing around the throne. And again, this is a clear reference back to Daniel chapter 7 and so much, I've mentioned this as we've gone along in our study of Revelation, is drawing from Daniel chapter 7. That's a great Old Testament apocalyptic book that goes parallel with the book of Revelation. I've, I've tried not to take us back there too much because it's easy to get bogged down in, in a lot of details. But as your own study, you might want to look at the book of Daniel. But in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, this was prophesied. And keep in mind, this was over a thousand years before John's vision. This final seventh trumpet hasn't blown yet, even in our own lifetime. So this prophecy of Daniel is, for us, 3,000 years old. But in Daniel 7, 14, it was prophesied, And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In fact, if I were just going to pick one verse out of this whole Bible that kind of sums up from beginning to end, what's it about? That might be a good candidate. That the father is handing to his son and the son is handing to his father a kingdom. And it's a kingdom that's going to be made up of people from every nation, language and tongue that will serve him. And he will have everlasting dominion. It is a kingdom that will not end. And then you come to the New Testament and the angel Gabriel repeats the same promise to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end, Luke 1, 31 to 33. 
So that's the plan. God decreed this before the beginning of the earth, before the create, foundation of creation. It's woven throughout the entire pages of Scripture. It's woven throughout the entire, all the pages of human history. This is what the big scroll is about that Jesus is unfolding and breaking the seals. He's bringing this plan of salvation for all of creation. He's bringing this plan of the kingdom of God, consuming the kingdom of Satan and of this world forever and ever to fruition with the blowing of the seventh trumpet. This is exactly why Jesus commanded us as his disciples to regularly pray, your kingdom come. And we do it every Sunday, every Sunday. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in light of that, and in light of the seventh trumpet blowing and all of this coming to its ultimate consummation, look what the elders do. They're normally seated on their thrones in these visions. They get up off their thrones and they fall on their faces to worship, verse 16, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, you remember them from chapters four and five, fell on their faces and worshiped God. And they sing to him a hymn of this anticipated victory that's going to occur when that seventh trumpet is blown. We give thanks to you, Verse 17, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And this phrase, who was and who is, that is a quote that has occurred three other times in the book of Revelation now. In chapter 1, verse 4, John described Jesus Christ as the one who was and who is and who is to come. Then Jesus Christ himself, in chapter 1, verse 8, described himself as the one who was and is and is to come. And then in chapter 4, verse 8, the creatures around the throne describe him as the one who is, was and is and is to come. But look at this fourth time that it occurs in the book of Revelation Thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, and look what's missing, who is to come, which makes perfect sense, right? Because in this vision, he's come. He has now come with the blowing of the seventh trumpet. He was and he is. And the culmination of history has reached its zenith. And his second coming in this vision is a present reality, that great consummating moment in which God overthrows those nations and people who have pitted themselves as an enemy of Jesus Christ. And in his mercy and in his long suffering, he comes to save a countless multitude of sinners to himself. And the elders rejoice of this. Look at the elders rejoicing that the hour of reckoning has at last arrived. The defiance of humanity is now going to be held in account. In verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, 
And then I love this phrase, as terrifying as it is, is at the end of verse 18, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. What a condemning phrase to use to human beings throughout the history of humanity who have pitted themselves against the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are ultimately the destroyers of the earth, the the antithesis of everything that God is planning and working out for his creation. And he says the day of reckoning has come, the day of judgment has come, and these elders and the host of heaven are rejoicing in that. We also read it's not going to be a day of terror for everybody. It's going to be a day of terror for those who aren't in Christ. But for those who are believers, for those who follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not going to be a day of terror. If you're in Christ, your sins have been forgiven already. If you're in Jesus Christ, your sins have been judged at the cross of Calvary already. The death and resurrection of Christ. And if you're in Christ, that day when the seventh trumpet blows is going to be a day of rewarding God's servants. Look at verse 18 in the middle there. It's a day for the dead out of Christ to be judged, but it's also a day for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small. I love that phrase too. Nobody's going to be forgotten. No matter how small you think you are, no matter how inconsequential you think you are, Great and small, rich and poor, if you are in Jesus Christ, when that day comes, it will be a day to receive your eternal reward. A reward for your faithfulness. A reward for your perseverance to the end. And it's not a reward for anything you've done by your might. It's not a reward for any of your works or your merit in yourself. It's not anything that you've done but it is a reward for the gift of grace that you have received, worked out in your life by the Holy Spirit. What a glorious day. And as I look at this, and as we've made our way through the book of Revelation, I can't help but notice woven into the very fabric of the book of Revelation or about a dozen, and I'm counting somewhere around six or seven now that we have come to in our passage this morning, hymns of praise, hymns of thanksgiving, hymns of adoration, praise choruses, song choruses, verses. And I don't think that should surprise us. If you think about how often in Scripture... When people draw near to God the Father or draw near to Christ the Son or draw near to the Trinitarian God, how often is the most natural response in the world to express their love and their awe and their adoration than singing? Singing. We're called to sing. We're commanded to sing. We can't help but sing. 
Worship sings. Worship makes music. That's exactly what the elders and creatures and the people in heaven are doing right at this very moment in our passage. When Jesus is approached in his majestic glory, songs and music just come out. It's irrepressible. You can't help it. I don't care if you don't have a musical bone in your body. You have to resonate with that. That's what we do when we gather here on Sunday mornings. Think about how much of our our worship service is singing. And you go back to chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter uh, chapter, uh, 13, 11, here today, this morning, and then coming up, chapter 14, chapter 15, it's just songs and songs and songs and songs. And you have the, the 24 elders singing, and you have the creatures singing, and you have the angels singing, and you have the, the saints and the church triumphant singing. Everybody's singing. And you've got new songs in chapters 4 and 5. And when we get to chapter 15, they're singing the song of Moses. From Exodus 15, and they're singing the song of the Lamb, which I don't even know what the song of the Lamb is, but I can't wait to learn it. And there's instrumentation. Many times it's been noted. Harps are playing. In our passage this morning, a trumpet is blowing. Great quote I found from commentator Dennis Johnson. He wrote this. Revelation shows us that those who dwell with God in heaven constantly break forth in song, overwhelmed with joy and adoration by his perfections in himself and by his awesome achievements in creation and redemption. Those who dwell with God constantly break forth in song and music. That's what it's for. What a beautiful picture. And I have to say, and some of you are aware of this, there has been this strange fringe teaching that has popped up in our community in the last couple of years. And there's nothing in the world wrong with singing psalms. You're going to be hard-pressed to find somebody who loves and advocates psalms more than I do. There's not a Sunday that goes by that we don't sing psalms. And there are allusions to psalms in all of these dozen songs in heaven. In fact, in our passage this morning, there are allusions to Psalm 2 about the nations raging and the Lord laughing and putting them into their place. But you don't have to just sing psalms. And this strange teaching that if you have instrumentation, it's an offense to God or God turns his ear away from it or God doesn't hear it. That's an awful thing to say. It's fine if you want to sing your psalms and you don't want to use instruments. That's fine. God hears that. He receives that. He's glorified by that. But I draw the line when you propose that us singing hymns and us singing rich biblical doctrine and filling it out with skilled musicians just like they do in the Old Testament, just like they're doing in heaven right now. As I read these accounts in Revelation of worship, this is the prototype for worship. This is worship at its ultimate perfection. And it is the singing of rich, robust, biblically sound, theologically rooted hymns 
to the great triune God, and it's drawing from the themes of the Psalms, it's drawing from the themes of Moses, it's drawing from the Old Testament, it's drawing from the New Testament, it's drawing from future events that haven't even occurred yet. And it's wrapping all of these things in, and it's drawing from the words of Jesus Christ himself, and it's pairing it with beautiful instrumentation, and it's filling it out with this great choir of hosts that is innumerable, And they're getting off their thrones and they're falling down on their faces and they're singing with gusto from their hearts. If you don't think God is blessed by that and honored by that, you're not reading the scriptures correctly. That's all I can say. God does not despise the heartfelt praises sung by his people. Don't let anybody tell you differently. What we do on Sunday morning brings glory and honor to God in the exact same vein and venue as these little worship scenes that we're privileged to have glimpses of as we work through our study in the book of Revelation. But look how this culminates. This this great worship scene around the throne in heaven The seventh trumpet has been blown. The enemies will now be judged. And those who fear the Lord Jesus Christ will now be rewarded. And then it ends with this glimpse of the Ark of the Covenant. Look at verse 19. God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. You remember in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, Testament, Ark of the Covenant, was housed in the inner sanctuary, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And you remember, nobody could approach it. Nobody could go past that veil except one man, the high priest, once a year, and he had to go with covenant blood. It was a gold rectangle box, and it housed the Ten Commandments and a couple, three other very special artifacts to the people of Israel. And you remember the top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. That was the the place of mediation. The the law is in the, the Ark. God descends upon the mercy seat in the form of a, a pillar of fire or a column of smoke. And he meets with his people there. And that's where the blood of the covenant is sprinkled. Many of you are familiar. If you're not, you need to see it. Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Indiana Jones tracks down the ark, tries to stop the Nazis, ends up finding it in Egypt. Nobody knows where the ark is. It may be extant in Egypt, I don't know. It's twice lost in the Old Testament, one time during the days of Eli, and then in 1 Samuel 4-6 through it returns back. You remember David later acquired the ark and then Solomon builds a house for the ark, the temple, and the ark resides in the temple. Then the Babylonians come and they ransack Jerusalem and that's the last you ever hear of the ark until you get to Revelation eleven nineteen. I don't know where the ark is. It's possible it's in heaven. I don't, you know, you read all of these visions and they're so symbolic. I, I'm very hesitant to take a lot of this stuff literally. I don't know if this is a literal vision of the ark, just like I argued last week. I don't think it's a literal vision of a temple that's going to be rebuilt. I I think that kind of misses the point. 
I think the point of the reference to John's vision of an ark here is the ark is a symbol of the presence of God. And until the coming of Christ, you couldn't approach God freely because of sin and guilt. But here in this heavenly scene of worship and the blowing of the seventh trumpet, I think what the vision is telling us is that because of the reconciling death of Christ, whose blood is now the blood of the everlasting covenant, that restriction no longer applies. What happened to the curtain when Christ was crucified? It tears in half from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies is now open. The most holy place is now open. The presence of the God and creator of the universe is now an inviting presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. And everyone, anyone, through the blood of Christ, can approach the Ark of His Covenant, can approach His presence in heaven if your law-breaking has been atoned for by the covenant blood of Jesus Christ. I think that is the message of Revelation 11, verse 19. God's purpose, when He designed and decreed the plan of salvation before the world was made, God's purpose when he designed and decreed your salvation before the foundation of the world was laid, has now come to the consummation with the blowing of the seventh trumpet and his anticipated kingdom coming to this world where he and you and me, by God's grace in Jesus Christ, will reign forever and ever. God is doing something great in history. And this is a glimpse of how it's all going to end. No wonder it's accompanied by signs to attest to what he is doing is so great. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. God is doing something great in history. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rule and the reign of Christ. We thank you for the as good as done consummation of your kingdom that has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and that you shall reign forever and ever. Lord, fill our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our mouths with songs of this theme, songs of wonder, praise, and glory. And Father, as we approach you in worship and adoration, do not despise the music that we bring, but receive it to your blessing and to your glory and to your honor and to the edification of your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Friends, let's stand and sing our closing hymn of response, hymn number 529.